I think from my perspective, I, what I'm trying to do is make everyone successful. And, and people's definition of success are different. And, and I'll use this as an example. I've got some officers that want to become future commanders. I've got other officers that are wanting to be the best healthcare provider that they can be. I've got other individuals that are interested in their, their definition of success is what they do following the military. As a leader, what I'm trying to do is meet people where they're at and then help them achieve their goals as best as I can within the, within the, with the tools that I might have available. Welcome to the Health Leader Forge. My name is Mark Bonica, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Health Management and Policy at the University of New Hampshire. Today's guest is my friend and former colleague, Colonel Tanya Peacock. Colonel Peacock has had a fascinating career from being a medevac pilot flying Blackhawks to being the vice provost of the Army Medical Department's facility for training the majority of medical specialties in the Army to being the commander of the Brigadier General Crawford F. Sam's Army Health Clinic in Camp Zama, Japan. In this podcast, Colonel Peacock shares her career journey what it was like to command a military clinic in a foreign country during a pandemic, and we conclude with advice for emerging leaders. I hope you enjoy listening to Colonel Peacock's story, and if you find it valuable, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you might be accessing this recording. It helps other people discover us. Thanks for listening. And here is Colonel Tanya Peacock. Welcome to the podcast, Tanya. Thanks. Thanks, Mark, for having me. So before we get started, you said you wanted to do a quick disclaimer. So I'll go ahead and let you do that. Sure. I just I just wanted to mention that any any thoughts that we talk about today are, are those of my own, and I'm not representing the Department of the Army or Department of Defense. All right. Great. So um, I've known you for a long time, and I'm excited to have the chance to, to, to share your story. You've had this amazing career, done a lot of really cool things. But I want to start right at the beginning so, uh, and ask you, what drew you to the military and how did you wind up becoming a medical service corps officer? A couple things drew me to the military. In high school, I lived in Annapolis, and so the Naval Academy was, was right outside our door. And I thought the lifestyle would be very interesting, and I wanted to do something for my country. And I know that sounds somewhat cliché. But coming from a family where both of my um, parents and most of my relatives, they immigrated here to the United States. And so I'm a first generation American. A lot of them spent time in the military, in the U.S. military during Vietnam. And so I wanted to also give back and and provide that service. That's very nice. Very cool. So you were drawn to the military. How did you wind up as a medical service corps officer? It's, it's interesting because, quite frankly, Medical Service Corps wasn't at the top of my list, but yeah. it's been an amazing career. I originally wanted to fly, and in order to become a pilot in the military, you have to pass the a physical exam and among some other tests. And one of the things that I discovered is I did not meet 
the anthropometric measurements. In other words, my, my arm span was shorter than, than what the regulation said. Okay. Um, it should be equal to become a pilot. So as a result, when I got commissioned, I thought, well, let me see if I can try this again. And one of the ways that you can do that at the time was if you applied for medical service corps, then you could potentially go to flight school as a medevac pilot. So I thought, well, let me see if I can try this again. Let me see if there are any exceptions. And, and so I did. I became a medical service corps officer, and I reapplied for flight school. I sat inside of a cockpit and showed that I could reach all the switches, and, and I was very fortunate to get picked up and selected. Wow. All right. So you, you, came, you came on active duty and you spent most of the first part of your career in operational units. What were the formative experiences for you as a young leader uh, in these organizations? Talk a little bit about what your missions were and, and what that was like. So the, my first duty station was in Korea and I, I found it very interesting. I really enjoyed what I was doing. I felt like we were making a difference in the country. And, you know, at the time I was an ambulance platoon leader and I was, it was, it was really great to work with all different kinds of people in order to, to make the mission happen. So what does that mean? Um, from there, so was, this be, be, well, was this before you became a pilot then? It was before I became a pilot. Okay. So I think it was, I think it really was a formative experience because I, un, I helped me better understand what others in the army are doing. And, and as a pilot, I think you really, and, and especially after becoming a medevac pilot, I think it's important to understand what's happening on the ground in order for you to best support that. So, so you were in Korea for, for a, a year, two years? For one year. And then okay. after that, I went to flight school. Mm -hmm. All right, great. So talk, what, what does it mean to be a medevac pilot? Oh, goodness. Um, I think, so in the military as a medevac pilot, it, as, and specifically in the Army, right now, the predominant aircraft that you're flying is a UH-60 Blackhawk. At the time when I joined, there were also uh, UH-1 Hueys that we were flying, and currently uh, the UH-72 Lakota is also being used as a as a um, medevac ambulance. What does the what does the mission look like? So somebody for a civilian who I mean may be familiar with the idea of medevac, like what I mean we've all seen rescue helicopters on TV and stuff, but I mean what's that like? What's the, how does that integrate into the larger military mission? And then what's it like actually like doing that role? Oh, absolutely. So I, I think what, what makes air medical evacuation in, in the army specifically interesting is that we pick up from point of injury and, and take patients back to the next higher level of care. And depending on where that is or what the battlefield looks like, you, you could be, going either long distances or short distances over different types of terrain. And you're trying to ensure that your patient can get to the place where we can give them the life-saving care that they need. 
the other thing that I think is important to note is the difference between medical evacuation and casualty evacuation. So medevac means that there is a some sort of provider on the back of the aircraft, usually a flight medic or which has paramedic skills, or another type of provider depending on on the mission set, and they're caring for the patient en route. Whereas typically for casevac or casualty evacuation, that's a what we what we call a non-standard aircraft where you are taking patients and, and you're, you're still performing that mission, but that life-saving care may not necessarily be available. You may not have all the tools or resources in order to do that. So you did that role for a while with a couple of different units. So the Army, an Army career is divided up into, as an officer is divided up typically into two, or if you're lucky, three kind of broad phases we call the early part of an officer's career, their company grade time where you're a lieutenant or a captain, and then you transition on to being a field grade officer, major lieutenant colonel, colonel, which is where you're at now. Speaking now as a senior officer, as a, as a colonel, what kind of advice do you give to young company grade officers about, you know, what does it take to be successful at that stage of your career? Yeah, I, I, I don't think there's one particular recipe that, that makes people successful, but I, I think there are some qualities that make you more likely to be successful. First of all, is, is having an open mind and getting along well with others. Being able to understand your role within the organization and how you fit, and then helping, helping others understand how they fit as well. It really is. Um, I really do believe the Army is a team sport. And, and so we have to rely on one another in order to make the mission happen. And so being that team player, helping other people out and, and knowing and understanding what what your role is, especially as a, as a junior leader, I think is very important. In that early part of your career, what would you say were you know, some of the formative experiences that you had as a young leader? Was there a unit that you felt like really kind of where you really learned to be the leader that you became? Were there individuals that really made a big difference in your career early, early on? I, I would say for every assignment, I probably learned a little bit more. I, I think as it, it's interesting, you know, now being a you know, being a professor, having taught uh, at the master's degree level, kind of reflecting back, I really did learn different things at each assignment, and and they were they were helpful. Um, you know, I think I think it's important to understand that as a young officer, you're always going to make mistakes, and so how I, what I try and tell folks is is how you recover from those mistakes and how you move on from them, and that's that really is is indicative of what kind of leader that you're going to be. I think for for my first couple assignments as a company grade officer, just understanding and and watching others and and how they lead, and then and then saying, hey, yes, this is this is what I would like to emulate. This is what I would like to take from this person. And and no, I I, I you know I think you, you learn a lot from watching other leaders as well that on um, what you don't want to be like. And so 
I've been really fortunate in that I have had a lot of leaders that invested a lot of time in me to help make me a, a better officer. And I do appreciate that. So you also, toward the, toward the end of that, that first phase, the company grade phase, you spent a few years at uh, what was then called the Army Medical Department Center and School or the AMED Center and School. This is an important organization. Talk a little bit about your time there and that first time there, what that experience was like and, and how did that influence your leadership style? Sure. So I think uh, the, the first job that I had there was serving as an aide-de-camp for a general officer. And, and that was a great experience because it helped me see what was going on at the, at the top of the organization, just having the opportunity to work for a general officer and watch them make decisions was an invaluable experience. And so I felt like after that job and I transitioned to becoming an instructor, I could understand where where the leadership wanted us to go a little bit better just due to the environment I was working in. But then as an instructor, what was so valuable, valuable to me at that time, you know, I was teaching at what at the time was called the officer basic course. And so that's that's our our initial professional military education. And and what was so great about that assignment as well is when you're teaching other people, you you have to be on your A game. You have to know and understand the material that you're talking about. So it it helped to develop me as an officer because I had to get into the regulations because I didn't want to be that person standing up in front of other people and getting asked a question that I couldn't answer. Now, does it happen? Oh, absolutely. And it happened to me then um, as much as it does even, you know, as, as it did when I was a professor teaching. But I think the, the way that you handle that and uh, recognizing that you can say, you know what, I don't have the answer for that right now. Let me look it up and I'll get back with you. People respect that at the end of the day, as much as you don't want to be placed in that position, have to say that. Um, yeah. It, 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 uh, it, it was good. It was, it was really, really good. And, and I think the other, the other piece to that as well, especially when I was teaching at the schoolhouse the first time with the with brand new students that are coming into the military is you always learn something from your students and everybody that comes in has a slightly different background different perspective and so trying to be able to teach the material to folks in a way that speaks to them i think is important and and you've got to get creative sometimes because you want them to do well i was telling an officer the other day you know that used to be a student of mine that that works for me currently that you know what you're a reflection of me your success directly you know i i take it personally <laughs> i <laughs> want people to be successful that i've that i've had a chance to mentor and 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 get to know and that i've taught so yeah think, that, that absolutely yeah. was an important part <laughs> i mean i think i think you know you're giving it a great example of i i think one of the cultural factors of the military is is pretty much everybody's expected at some point to take on a role in a training organization which i think is kind of unique as a corporation right like you don't like if you work for i don't know i'm gonna 
say like General Electric or something like like there isn't like an expectation that at some point you're going to rotate through and be a and teach early career people about the organization. Whereas I think in the military, it's an expectation um, that at some point in your career, you're going to be engaged in that process. And I think what you were saying is, is really insightful that like that process of teaching is really valuable to you in terms of like really honing your craft. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think, like I was saying, it's, it's about, under, it's about understanding what it is that we're supposed to do in the military and also developing others. And I think that's what really made it so rewarding. And, and what was so interesting, I think, about it is I, I did have a, a mentor of mine that said, hey, why don't you teach at the schoolhouse? And I thought, oh, goodness, that's, that's really not on my list of, of things that I would like to do. But I am so glad that I listened. I think he knew me better than I knew myself. And, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that advice now, hindsight 2020. So this puts you kind of, what, around the 10 year mark, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. And at that point, you decided to go get your master's in health administration from the Army Baylor program that you and I both taught into later as professors. What made you decide, or, or I mean, that's kind of a turning point you know, because once you take, once you, you know, the army offers all these carrots and there's always a price to be paid. So it's a going to, so going to like the army Baylor program would have committed you for a number of more years. You know, at what point did you decide, you know, this military thing's pretty cool. I'm going to do at least, you know, I'm going to do a career. I'm going to do at least 20 years. Well, I think for me, at least I, I kind of went back and forth quite a bit. When I first came in, I was I was all in. I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to make this a career. And then um, as, as my career progressed, you know, you, you, you kind of wonder like, is, is this really the path I'm supposed to be taking? But what's great is I always have wonderful mentors that if I felt that way, I could, I could talk, talk with them and, and they would help, help me understand a little better you know, what it is that I, that I potentially would want to do. So I think at the 10 year mark, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, it is quite frankly, a turning point because at, at that point, you've got to decide, Hey, am I in it for the long haul or, or is this a good point for me to transition and, and say, thank you. It's been a great career for me. I was, I was definitely still enjoying my time in the military and, and I felt like I could continue to make a difference. I was just coming off the, like I said, the instructor assignment where I felt like it was a very much a rewarding position. I wanted to learn a little bit more about our, our healthcare system. So up until that point, I had been mostly uh, working in operational units. I hadn't worked in a, a military medical treatment facility or a fixed, a fixed facility hospital of anything um, of that nature. And I was really interested in learning more about it so that I can understand the whole healthcare continuum. So that's what attracted me initially to Army Baylor. I, I already had a master's degree, so it wasn't about getting the degree. It was about learning and, and understanding more about the Army Medical Department. And I think that, that Army Baylor absolutely provided that to me. Well, we're, I know we're both big fans of the program. So 
Um, so you went yeah. through, got that master's degree, got some exposure to kind of fixed facility, but then you went back to flying again, right? So you, uh, after that, you were, you were, you went back to operations and you commanded the air ambulance detachment at Fort Polk, Louisiana. What does it mean to be a commander in the army? And this is in the army, the commander is not a rank. So how is that different from being, you know, a supervisor, for example? I, I think the first thing that I would say is command is a privilege. I'm in command right now, and I'm, I'm grateful every single day for, for the opportunity to be a part of the organization that I'm in and that I have the, the opportunity to work with the people that I do every single day. At the end of the day, command is you are ultimately responsible for everything that occurs within that organization. And I think that's probably the most succinct way that I can put that. I think one of the things that's interesting, having talked with a lot of folks who've left the military, is the military, I don't want to use um, the word that's coming to my mind is, is intrudes on your personal life, but that's not really the right. It's not quite like that, but there's a, I think maybe if you weren't part of the military it would feel that way, but there's a, a level of, of responsibility. I think that as a commander, you have in, in a military organization, that's different than, you know, if you were a supervisor in a civilian organization, that's kind of what I was, uh, I was thinking about with that okay. question. So I think, I think what's important to, to note as a commander in the military is that the day doesn't end at 1700 or at, at 5 p.m. You are responsible for the people in your organization 24-7. And, and, and yes, I think potentially from a non-military perspective that might seem potentially intrusive, but it's, it's really about caring for others and, and, and caring about people. As an example, right now, as a, as a commander in Japan, how we conduct ourselves off the installation matters. It, it matters in terms of how people view the U.S. military, how, how they could potentially view the United States, um, just based on our interactions. And so it's important that we uh, let's say that we conduct ourselves appropriately at all times, and that we're ambassadors for not only our country but but for our organization as well. So, air ambulance detachment. What was the mission of of that organization? What made that organization a little bit unique is that we provided air medical evacuation support for the the training center that's located at Fort Polk. And so um, because it's hot outside and, and folks typically go to the training center to ensure that, that they're able to perform their wartime mission, um, you know, there's potentials for, for accidents and for, for folks to get hurt. And that's, that's what we were there for is in the event of emergency that we would uh, respond on the installation and, and take folks back to the hospital that's located there at Fort Polk. So, you you were successful in that organization. You went on to work with the special forces for a while, and then you were offered the opportunity to earn a PhD. How did you decide that that was something you wanted to do, and what did you study? 
So the reason why I wanted to get a PhD is because I really enjoyed my my time as a as an instructor previously and the camaraderie we had with the other instructors and, and watching watching the students grow and develop and I wanted to be able to continue to do that. And and so uh, to get a PhD seemed like a, a logical choice. And I wanted to give back to the army and 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 I think that's important. I I at that point in my career really felt fulfilled. I had already nearly finished 20 years. I, I could have really and truly retired and, and not incurred that additional active duty service obligation to get that, to get the PhD. But I really was grateful for the opportunities that I've had. And so I wanted, I wanted to give that opportunity to give back. And then in terms of international business, why I selected that, there, there was a couple of reasons for that. First of all, the, the program evolved from a master's of healthcare administration program to a program that offered both a master's of healthcare administration and a master's of business administration. And because I did not have any background in business administration, I thought it would be helpful to the program if I learned a little bit more and got, got a little bit stronger in that area so that I could be a more effective instructor. And then I also spoke to some of my, my mentors about it. Lee Bewley, Kevin Broom, both of those instructors are professors now. They were really instrumental in, in guiding me towards a, a business degree as well. And I'm really, I'm really, really grateful for that because I think I learned a lot and, and I found it very interesting. So you came to Army Baylor where we overlapped for about a year and you were a professor, but, but you were pretty quickly pulled into leadership roles, not only in our, our program, but back again at this. So this was back at the AMED Center and School where we, we talked about where you had done, uh, had been a teacher before. You were pretty quickly pulled into senior leadership roles and you ultimately wound up being the vice provost of academic affairs. What was, so, I mean, I'm not, I don't think you thought you'd wind up there uh, when you signed up for the PhD. What was it like leading at that level in an academic organization? No, you're, you're spot on. I, I, didn't, I didn't think that that was the route that I was gonna go at all. In, in fact, you know, uh, the thought process that I had in terms of, like I said, oh, I wanted to get a business degree so I could become more valuable to the program. At the time, I didn't understand that as a PhD, you're learning a lot about a specific area versus teaching broadly. And so my level of understanding about academia it increased as I spoke to my mentors as well. But I think it, in terms of the larger organization, you played a you played actually a, a big role in that. I know when we talked, you had been working, you know, as a professor, and and they had you. I, I want to say, for lack of a better term, do, doing a side job with a with a vice That's provost of right. academic affairs at the time. Yeah, <laughs> but you were doing it very very well, and it involved resources with the organization, ensuring that our our resources for our programs were taken care of both in terms of funding and personnel. And because you shared that with me and you exposed me to that, I had a 
better idea of what was going on across the organization that I would never have had un unless you had shared that with me. And so actually I, I attribute a lot of that to what you exposed me to and then having the opportunity to work with others and, and continuing to ensure that our, our programs and our students were taken care of. I think you're giving me too much credit there, but um, uh, but briefly, no. uh, <laughs> briefly uh, give a give a quick synopsis of the scope of the AMED Center and School and kind of what rolled up under the vice provost role, because it's not just like sure. one graduate program. There's a lot there. Yes. So the I think now it's called the the Medical Center of Excellence. We teach about thirty six thousand students in a in a wide variety of programs and so the programs range from like technical or vocational programs to graduate degree programs so it's a broad scope and I think what I learned from that job is that there's a difference between training and education and so when you're teaching folks uh, across that big spectrum, you've got to have folks that understand the technical aspect, the vocational, the, that skill set where you want those soldiers to perform. And then you've got the other end of the spectrum where you've, you've got folks that, that you want people to think more creatively versus step by step. And it was a, a phenomenal experience just learning about all the different programs that, that the Army has. And, and how we continue to stay updated with what's going on because medicine is always evolving. So we've got to make sure that we are keeping up with all of the latest and greatest that's happening. Yeah. I mean, to, to kind of emphasize your point, like the, well, I guess they call it medical center of excellence. Now, I mean, you had all of the enlisted medical we call them MOSs in the in the army, but all all of so like your all your combat medics, all your you know lab techs, all that, all the way up to what we had doctoral degrees in like anesthesia, nurse anesthesia, and I think physical therapy at that point. So it's just an incredible range, and and thirty six thousand yeah. students is like that's bigger than UNH by about three times. <laughs> so, so it's pretty impressive organizations. I just, I, you know, I want to have folks understand how big that responsibility was. No, I, so, I, I yeah, think that's ahead. great. And I think what else might be interesting to note is, is, you know, kind of what you were saying, some of the programs lasted several years, right? Whereas others might be several weeks. So it just kind of depended what it is that, that we were training or what we were educating people on. Also, I think what's, what's important to note is in that role, we were responsible not just for what was taking place on that campus in San Antonio, but a lot of that training also took place in hospitals. So you might have, for example, a program like the Army Baylor program where you're, where you're teaching a didactic portion at the schoolhouse for a year, but then also as part of that program, you're doing a residency for another year out at another military treatment facility. So it's actually a two-year program. And you're responsible for the activities, the educational activities that take place at those other locations, as well as what's taking place on the, you know, at Joint Base San Antonio. It was a highlight of my career being there. I, I love, I love being at, at the 
you know, what we used to call the AMED Center in school. So, but so you were yeah. really successful. You were successful at this uh, 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 role. And as a result, you were selected to be the commander of the Brigadier General Crawford F. Sam's Army Health Clinic. So where is the Brigadier General Crawford F. Sam's Army Health Clinic? And what is that role? Our, our clinic, our Medic Japan, is also what it's known as. Uh, we're located in Camp Zama, Japan, which is about um, it's southwest of Tokyo. Depending on traffic, it can it can it can take a, a short while or a long while to get there from the center of Tokyo. We are an outpatient, patient-centered medical home. We are located in the vicinity of some other larger medical facilities that are run. Navy and the Air Force. So we are, and, and we do interface with them quite a bit, uh, especially being overseas. So what is the mission of Camp Zama and how do you support that as the MEDAC commander? Essentially, United States Army, Japan, we work with the Japanese Ground Self-Defense Force and partner with them in order to ensure security in the region. So one of the things that's been really unique is we're talking now in March of 22 and most of the time you've been there or the entire time you've been in command has been during the COVID pandemic. Is that, that's correct. Or or your assignment has been almost entirely during, uh, during COVID. What has that been like trying to, with all the uncertainty and, and challenges? Well, I, I think it's been it, it's been absolutely it's interesting and very rewarding and and I've absolutely learned a lot. I've I've been really fortunate that I've got a great group of professionals, medical professionals that uh, are part of my unit. They really worked hard to keep our community safe, and we worked through all of the uncertainties together. and And I think that made us closer, more tight knit unit in certain in certain respects. But, but COVID itself, and, and in terms of, of how we handled it, really did change how we practice medicine. It, it changed how we gathered and, and communicated as a military organization. This is a really unique time for any healthcare organization. And you, you mentioned you, you changed the way that you delivered care, the way you met and so forth. Can you give some examples of the leadership challenges and you know and how you how you and your team rose to the occasion to meet those? Sure. I think probably the the biggest challenge from a leadership perspective was to maintain that connectedness that you would normally have, especially as a military unit. I, I think you alluded to it earlier um, when we were talking about how leadership in a military organization differs from just being a supervisor. I, I think it's because we do have that camaraderie. There's that expectation for individuals that it's not just a nine to five job, that you're a soldier 24 hours a day. And especially when you're overseas in an environment like we are in Japan, usually you would have that opportunity to do a lot of our, our traditions that we have in the military, where we gather, where we welcome people to the organization, where we, where we form those connections as part of a larger group. And, and what I found in our organization, in particular due to COVID, is because we were only meeting in groups of 
six to 10 because we wanted to make sure we were socially distanced. That connectedness as an organ, as a whole organization was difficult to, to foster and maintain. And so we had to end up getting very creative about our identity as an organization, ensuring that people understood that, hey, yes, you have your group of, of six to 10 people and, and you're working to make sure that our patients are taken care of, but please understand that what you do affects different, different other parts of our organization as well and, and understanding that interface between other people when you don't have the opportunity to gather as larger groups or having meetings of larger sizes um, that can be quite challenging. And, and I think even when you leverage tools like Zoom, for example, or, or Microsoft Teams, where you, can, where you can talk across the organization, but, but when you're leveraging meetings like that, that personal connection doesn't always come across. And, and so, so we had to get a little bit, we had to get a little bit creative <laughs> and, and that's okay. I think that's a great uh, transition to talk a little bit about leadership. Um, so what is your leadership philosophy? As leaders in military organization, we, we do write our leadership philosophy down. And, and I think that's, that's important. And it's important to be able to articulate that and con- convey it to everyone in the organization. And, and the way that I boil it down is, is really three main things. First of all, just doing the right thing. So a, a, a lot of problems uh, can be solved or prevented just by doing the right thing, meaning that you're, you're living the Army values. We celebrate diversity, exude servant leadership. So my people don't work for me. I work for them and came together as a team. And the second, the second thing as, as part of my philosophy is, is to do your best, right? So, uh, uh, you know, honest mistakes are always okay. You know, people shouldn't be afraid of making mistakes and, and, and that's fine. We're a learning organization, you know, and mistakes are going to happen. It's what you do after that and, and, and how you recover from that and, and what you learn from that, that, that becomes important. And, and I think the other thing in, in terms of doing your best is, is recognizing that people are, people are different. And so um, one approach to how you do something may not necessarily be the same as someone else's, but at some point for our organization to move forward, we may have to agree to disagree and say, you know what, I, I appreciate your viewpoint. I've heard you. And however, we've got to move out in this direction. And, and having everyone feel okay with that, I think is important. I also think it's important to be able to embrace change. I think our organization really did that well. There is a lot of change that happens with COVID. We were, um, even right now, policies change on a regular basis. Um, you know, every week it seems like things evolve. And we've, we've got to understand that the one thing that's constant is change. And so being able to lean forward and anticipate and being flexible when changes come down um, really just makes it a, a better environment to work in. And then also to be positive, right? So doing your best means positively approaching things. No one wants to be around someone who's scratchy all day long. And, and so approaching your work in a, in, a, in a positive manner is important. And then the last thing is, is focus on the basics. 
I think that's that's one of the things that makes the special operations community really strong is just being being the subject matter expert in your own area and your field of expertise. And in my organization currently, we are we are very small. We're a small outpatient clinic, and so usually there's one or two people that perform a specific function. And so it's important for our organization in order to work as a team that that you constantly learn learn and, and stay abreast of your craft and that you help other people around you understand what your function is and that you train the standards. And and that's that's coming from that schoolhouse background just to understand that, hey, this is this is my mission, this is what I'm supposed to do, this is how I'm part of the team. And I need to be able to be at be at the top of my game. And that means I have to practice. I have to I have to practice those things that I'm expected to do if I don't do them every single day to make sure that we keep our patients safe. And then the last thing is exercising disciplined initiative. When I'm saying focus on the basics, what I mean is that I'm, I, for example, as a healthcare administrator, I'm expected to know, know my craft in terms of healthcare administration, but I also want to make sure that if I'm willing to accept some risk, that I do it in a way that's logical and that we, we take into account our, our healthcare population. I, I know that that. That's probably a lot in terms of, of command philosophy. Um, yeah. That's why I, I really, uh, but I think it's important to explain those things, right? So doing the right thing can mean different things to different people, right? Doing your best, focusing on the basics. But I think once you once you do all those things, it, it really helps you. It provides that foundation for teamwork and, and, and to move forward as an organization. So based on your leadership philosophy, when you're looking at um, people, junior leaders, what are you looking for to identify people who have high potential? Well, Mark, I think from my perspective, I, what I'm trying to do is make everyone successful. And, and people's definition of success are different. And, and I'll use this as an example. I've got some officers that want to become future commanders. I've got other officers that are wanting to be the best healthcare provider that they can be. I've got other individuals that are interested in their their definition of success is what they do following the military. Um, so as a leader, what I'm trying to do is meet people where they're at and then help them achieve their goals as best as I can within the, within the, with the tools that I might have available. I certainly don't have all the answers. Um, I don't think anyone does, but um, being there uh, for individuals and, and helping them sort that out, I think, I think that is, is a role of a leader. I, I think the other thing too is, is understanding in terms of developing people professionally, under, understanding where they want to go. So what I've done is, is I meet with my, my civilians. I meet with my, my officers that I, that I evaluate on a regular basis so that I can understand where it is that they do want to go. And that way, when opportunities present themselves, I have the ability then to say, hey, I know a person that would 
perfect for that. Or I, if, if another opportunity presents itself that, that I can match, match that with the, with the individual, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I wanted to ask you, so you are, your husband is also a medical service corps officer. How have you navigated challenges of being dual military? And you're both, you've both been really successful. So how have you navigated the challenges of being dual military of, of, you know, assignments that maybe want to pull you in separate places and, and so forth? What's that been like for you? And how have you guys kind of managed that? Well, I, I think it, it's interesting. I, I think the most important lesson we learned is that the army has a vote. <laughs> so um, when we got married, um, <laughs> we said, you know what? We'll alternate. First, you get to pick the job that you want, and then I'll pick a job that I want. We'll, we'll alternate back and forth. And, and like I said, without, <laughs> without realizing at the time that because the army gets a vote, even if it might be somebody's turn, they, they may not get the turn that they want or the assignment that they're, they're looking for just because there, there are other, other plans and other forces that take hold. But I think what's made our marriage work is that, that we realize that we, we do have to give and take and, and we, we both love the military and, and, and sometimes it's not exactly what the other person wants, but we do our best to, to, to make it work. I'm... Nice. That sounds kind of cheesy, doesn't it? No, no, that's, that's, that's really good. Well, let's, um, <laughs> so, so no, that's a nice answer. Let me, so let's close then. So, so in closing, what advice do you have for, early careerists who are thinking about a career in healthcare administration, what advice would you give to either a young, you know, a young Lieutenant who's maybe just coming into the medical service corps or uh, a young, a young person like who's graduating from my program here at UNH and getting ready to go out into the civilian workforce. I think there's a couple things that uh, to think about. I think, I think that young early careerists, there's a couple things that early careers can think about um, in, in terms of healthcare administration. Healthcare administration is all about taking care of others, right? So whether that's taking care of your staff, whether it's taking care of your patients, also a little bit of taking care of yourself, right? To ensure you have that appropriate balance. But you've, you've got to put that, that patient experience first and ensure that you're providing high quality patient-centered care. The other, the other piece is, is taking care of people and, and taking care of others, making sure that you have and, and you develop and you foster that, that trust and respect within your team um, that you want to have to where people want to come to work every single day. And then wor working on your craft every single day to get a little bit better and learn something. I know from my, from my junior officers, um, what what I try and, and ingrain in them is if you don't know the answer, I don't expect you to know all the answers, but I I do expect that you do your best in terms of, of looking it up. If, if it's something that you can research, um, if there's a regulation that's about it, that, that you come in prepared. Well, Tanya, Colonel Peacock, thank you so much for uh, 
talking with me today. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun to catch up with you. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's really, um, <laughs> this has been a, a, a great experience and I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again soon.